As climate change impacts our weather, causing more frequent and severe droughts, some might argue that investing in hydropower infrastructure is not a wise decision. However, this renewable resource is considered one of the oldest and most stable and is actually contributing to economic gains and providing flood and drought control in regions where it's needed most. To discuss the role of hydropower in our energy transition, I'm joined by Eddie Rich, CEO of International Hydropower Association. I'm Pamela Larg, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Eddie, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about what is arguably one of the most important renewables resources that we have at our disposal. To set the scene, can you tell us a little bit more about the role of hydropower in the energy transition? What makes it so important? Yeah, well, look, it's really nice to be here, Pamela. Thanks very much for inviting me. I think I would point to three very clear things that make hydropower sort of really unique and essential in the energy transition. I mean, first of all, is the obvious point. It's what Fatih Birrell, the uh, executive director of the International Energy Agency, calls the forgotten giant of the renewables. I mean, it is almost as big as wind and solar put together. It's 16% of all our electricity needs. So whatever way you look at it, it is going to play a big role, even if wind and solar are going to become much larger in proportion. And I guess that's the second point. The second point is we are going to see a lot more wind and solar come onto the system. And that's great. We want to see that. But they are variable renewables. When the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, it needs some backing up. And that's really hydropower's trump card because it provides flexibility and it provides reliability and energy storage, which supports and balances these variable renewables. And thirdly, it is a driver of industrial growth, as are other renewables, but also plays that kind of role on flood and drought control. It's a source of clean water supply, irrigation, green hydrogen, and it's a sort of forever energy because once you have built the infrastructure where the oldest hydroelectric plants in the world, many of them are still going. We don't know really what its lifespan is. It depends on how it's modernised. So that's why IEA and IRENA say you've got to double hydropower capacity in the next 30 years to be on track with net zero. We need in the next 10,000 days, 1 million megawatts of installed capacity. And that's 10 megawatts of new hydropower a day. So it is going to be essential, even if we're talking about wind and solar, you know, going up by factors of 10 or 20, we do need to double hydropower. Well, you've certainly set the scene for us. Those numbers are quite incredible to think about and conceive. I will never forget listening in 2021 to former Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull saying that uh, hydropower is the forgotten workhorse of the energy sector, and it does seem to be the case. You mentioned, you know, in the face of climate change, there's a great deal of extreme weather, 
It's coming to the full droughts, should I say more severe or frequent droughts. And I wanted to touch on that a little bit, Eddie. How is this change in weather and specifically droughts impacting the hydropower sector? What regions would you say are experiencing the biggest impact? Yeah, look, this is a worry for all sectors, for all infrastructure, and obviously it affects hydropower in a serious way. We've had a lot of droughts this year, all around the world. I mean, of course, we, you know, Europe and the US and China have been very much in the news. And it's funny that we don't really recognise the reliance we have on hydropower when we don't have it. It's suddenly like, oh, my God. And the weird answer to that would be, uh-oh, don't rely on hydropower, rather than, uh-oh, we need more hydropower. We need, and it is interesting, the countries that did best in those droughts, actually, the ones that got through it, China, so the world is Spain, so the world, that's because they've had built a lot of hydropower infrastructure that just got them through. And their responses are, well, yeah, we better make sure that we've got enough for next time. Variability, volatility of climate is going to affect us all. We are going to see unpredictable weather patterns. And because of that, and the impacts that will have on flooding and on drought, we will need more water infrastructure. And we might as well use that for firm energy. We might as well power it, not just build our embankments and dams, and we might as well stick turbines on them and make sure that actually they make us stronger to avoid blackouts. So yes, it is a problem, but we are the answer. I couldn't have said it better. And that brings me into my next question, which is that there are so many people who are critical of hydro. And obviously, there are various reasons behind that. What are some of the key arguments that the naysayers bring to the table? And how do you answer those arguments, Eddie? The chief one we keep hearing is, you're building big concrete walls, you have to displace a lot of people, it's uh, not good for the environment. And look, there is a lot of truth in that there. And the legacy has not always been great. There have been some mistakes that we've learned from. We're the oldest. We're the granddaddy of the renewables. And like most of us, as we get older, we realise all the mistakes and things we could have done better when we were younger. And the important thing is whether you're not, you're learning from it. And what we've done over the last 15 years is worked with NGOs, with governments, with international financial institutions to make sure that we are taking some of those environmental and social issues and embedding them into our practice. And I'll talk about our, the hydropower sustainability standard later on. But basically, this is a multi-stakeholder standard that has established an agreed way, not established by industry, but across governments, companies, civil society, banks, what is the right way to do hydropower. So we know it's not just a possible to build sustainable hydropower, it is now an expectation. Our members in the International Hydropower Association, they all have signed up to the San Jose Declaration on Sustainable Hydropower, which says going forward, the only acceptable hydropower is sustainable hydropower. 
And that is measured by this standard. So that is something I'm determined that we say, not only are we doing all future hydropower sustainably, but also we've learned lessons that we hope can help the other renewables as they get older and realise that some of the things that are being done need to be very well managed. I suppose the second criticism, of course, is it's expensive. It's big costs, big high capital costs. And that's true. And we have to find mechanisms to get over that. But over the whole life cycle, I talked about it being a forever energy. If you take the life cycle of a hydropower plant at a very conservative 80 years, then the IPCC say we're the second cheapest form of renewable energy over that life cycle. So this is about building for the future. And it's a proven technology. <laughs> Lots of people say, hey, what's the silver magic bullet to net zero? We've got the technology. We know what it is. Wind, solar backed up by hydro and turning any excess into green hydrogen and then interconnect the whole world. Use batteries for quick on and off. We can do this. We know it. We don't need to invent something new. We just need to build the mechanisms to allow the proven technologies to take hold. And before we delve into some of those mechanisms in a little bit more detail, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned in the beginning, Eddie, and that's hydropower's potential to actually avoid economic losses and specifically provide flood and drought control water supply, irrigation, etc. Again, you said this is the energy of the future and we have got to be protecting our water resources. So if you can talk a little bit more about hydropower's role in that. So if you look at the case of the Three Gorges, which is the first project I went to see in my current role as CEO of the International Hydropower Association, and of course it's the biggest hydropower project in the world, 22 gigawatts. I mean, the history of that part of China has been the battle with the Yangtze River, which flooded every year. And it caused enormous costs when it would flood. It would disrupt livelihoods. People would have to resettle. Agriculture was ruined. um, Livelihoods lost. And so when it came to the completion in 2007 of this enormous project. It was the Chinese people of that area thinking, right, finally we've tamed the monster. And the previous flood in 1999, before the completion, had caused losses which were equivalent to the total investment cost of the Three Gorges. So Effectively, in one year, it had recovered its cost if that had been a flood year. And every year it floods a little bit, but that was just in terms of taming the river. And then on top of that, you've got 22 gigawatts of energy, which was sort of an afterthought, by the way, in the design of the project. So that is providing enough electricity for almost half a billion people. So it was a economic offset almost immediately. And then in addition, you have the electricity supply that came out of it. And that is bringing in again another 
about one eighth of the total investment cost each year in terms of revenue from the electricity. So you can see how it really did pay for itself almost instantly. Now, as I've said before, I'm not saying that it's a perfect project. I'm sure there are things we would look to do differently, particularly now we have the sustainability standard. But in terms of the need for addressing the economic costs of floods, building water infrastructure is necessary. Powering it is an obvious additional benefit. I think the Three Gorges Dam is a perfect illustration of what you were trying to say in terms of the economic benefits. So thank you for sharing that in more detail. If I can talk about another benefit, and again, you mentioned this, it's flexibility, it's grid balancing. And, you know, pumped hydro or pumped storage has played such an important role. And I believe that we will see more projects, including pumped hydro in the future. Can you talk more about pumped hydro? And do you think we'll see a growth in this sector? Well, I think we'll have to. I mean, the big advantage of pumped hydro is you're using the same water over and over again, and it can be built off river. It can be closed loop or it can be, you know, connected up to water systems. And it takes rather a small amount of land use. I mean, building an upper kind of turkey's nest pool of water, it rarely involves a huge amount of land use. There's been studies by the Australian National University sort of looking at the potential sites around the world for pump storage, taking out any kind of protected area, taking out any highly populated areas, just looking at where you've got the elevation for other areas. And they've identified over 600,000 sites around the world. So there's no shortage of sites. You can do it environmentally and socially pretty cleanly. I mean, if even if, you know, by the way, if only one in a hundred of those sites are viable, you've still got 6,000 sites, which is enough to support wind and solar and probably firm energy in its own right around the world. So we are going to need pumped storage. I do think it's absolutely an essential part of this picture because of its unique role in storing energy. But it's not going to happen by itself. That's the problem. We're going to need market mechanisms to reward it. What the market does is it rewards generation. When you switch on your light, you pay for how much your light is on. You don't pay very often for knowing that the light is going to come on. You don't have the systems in many markets for reliability, for balance, for storage. And so market systems have have to become much more sophisticated. Either you're going to have what Malcolm Turnbull did in South Australia with uh, Snowy Hydro, basically do a government takeover. And that's what is done in lots of countries around the world, particularly developing countries or China. You have government systems and state ownership, or you need the market mechanisms which ensure that this reliability is rewarded through mechanisms like a floor on pricing on their returns or a capacity payment to make sure that, you know, there's always going to be firm energy on the system. And that can be done. It's difficult. There are lots of different schemes going on and it's exciting to watch, but we've got a long way to go with that. Otherwise, we are going to just find ourselves falling back on fossils. 
I'm really pleased you mentioned market mechanisms. And I think, you know, there's a lot of work to be done also in terms of the regulatory landscape and policy landscape to really speed up the renewable project deployment. And on that point, Eddie, what are some of the issues hindering hydro projects? Or if I can rephrase, what do we need to speed up hydropower projects to get them developed and working and actually delivering clean power? We need three things. I mean, we definitely need those market mechanisms. We definitely need to make sure that we have systems that reward that backup. And I should imagine wind and solar will be arguing more and more for that. Secondly, we need to make sure that licensing and permitting systems are streamlined. I don't want them to be shortcutted. I mean, they're very good safeguarding in that, especially around sustainability issues. But it takes often, you know, seven to 10 years to get a license. And by that time, you know, the train has left the station as far as the energy transition is concerned. So we need to go through that process quicker. And the third point is, and that's connected to the second point, is we need to make sure that all projects are sustainable. When people think about hydropower, they don't just think about green energy, they think about clean energy. Eddie, I want to speak a little bit about our current energy crisis. It's a very serious situation that we're facing, not just in Europe, but the entire world, I think, is looking at energy slightly differently. In your opinion, do you believe we're going to see more hydropower or more focus on hydropower in the face of this energy crisis? It's clean energy. That's what we need. We are moving away from fossil fuels and perhaps now is the right time to really push into this renewable resource. Look, we will have to. <laughs> we will have to see that a change in the adoption of renewables. And Fatty Birrell, for example, has talked about this as an opportunity that there will be more renewables coming onto the system. And hydropower will definitely be part of that. Because, for all the reasons I've said before, you can't envisage a decarbonised electricity grid without some serious storage, long-duration energy storage. And at the moment, the only proven technology at scale for that is hydropower, whether it's impounded and reservoirs or whether it's pump storage. And so, yeah, we're going to see a lot more focus on hydropower's role. I think wind and solar sectors will be calling for it more and more because they will come under further scrutiny and people say, well, are we just overcapacitated on them because they'll see wind turbines sort of stopped because the system can't take it on. When we're all thinking, well, you could be storing that. If you had a good storage system like pump storage, you could be storing it. So the whole discussion, as soon as you start exploring what are you going to do to fill the hole left by coal and the mass left by gas, then you've got to fall back on hydropower. It is the answer. It's ready. It's proven. And from now on, it's going to be sustainable and enhancing the economy. So, Eddie, it's safe to say that you are really optimistic about the future of hydropower globally. Clearly, there's a lot of exciting movement in the sector and a very promising future. Yeah, I am optimistic. I mean, I find it daunting, those figures we talked about at the beginning, 
And if you'd asked me a few months ago whether I thought this could be done, I would be, I don't know, it's pretty touch and go. And I still would say it is absolutely a matter of political will and choice. This is not going to happen by itself. Somebody is going to have to make active decisions to make sure hydropower happens. But when I look around the world and I see what's happening in China, where last year 80% of the new installed capacity in hydropower took place, but I see that they are totally committed to this. You see the commitments are being made in India and the way that that market is moving towards hydropower. You see the announcements in the US under the Inflation Reduction Act and how that could catalyze a whole load of particularly pumped storage. And then I look at Australia and they last month announced the largest pump storage project in the world by some measures in Queensland. And they've got a whole set of mechanisms that they are working on to make sure that private investment streams in. So there's a lot happening in New South Wales, as well as in Queensland and Tasmania. So I see green shoots around. I think we are turning a corner. It's been very difficult for this sector. It's still, we're not out of the woods by any means at all. The growth is not nearly, and investment is not going nearly fast enough. But we are beginning to see, I believe, the green shoots of some kind of hydro renaissance. My next question, Eddie, is to understand a little bit more about the IHA. How do you nurture those green shoots? What is the role of the IHA in supporting the growth of the sector, in mobilising investments, and to a degree changing that political perspective that is perhaps in the past hindered the growth of hydro? How is IHA involved in really nurturing the sector? So IHA is the voice of sustainable hydropower globally. We are a membership-based organisation with over, well, almost 100 companies all around the world. And we try to bring that voice of the progressive end of the sector, those committed to sustainable hydropower, not just hydropower, to the table. And we'll be, for example, active at COP and other major discussions going on around the world. We're there. And We particularly want to focus on trying to get that message about the need for financial mechanisms, the need for government policy, the need for streamlined permitting and licensing. But we also need to look at our own sector and ask our own sector to do better. The sustainability standard, the first one in any of the renewable sector, is an essential starting point. And we need to make sure that is adopted by our members. We need to really zoom in on some particular areas like pump storage or making the most of existing infrastructure, whether it's modernisation or retrofitting non-powered dams or whether it's floating solar. We've got to be looking at some of those topics, zooming in and saying, what's happening in the markets there? Why isn't that happening? And get governments and NGOs as part of that conversation round the table with the companies and with the investors and say, right, what tweaks can we do? What little changes need to be done in market signals and government policy that will make the difference? And I think we're beginning to see that in pump storage. And we need to do it for some of the other, perhaps more conventional areas too. Indeed, many small changes, but perhaps they need to happen rather rapidly. 
and will hopefully lead to some big market developments at the end of the day. Eddie, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I did want to give you the opportunity to perhaps share any concluding thoughts with our listeners today. I think there is a great danger that just at the very point that the world should be accelerating towards net zero is in danger of stalling. And it's in danger of stalling because it gets so focused on wind and solar that it forgets what to do when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. Hydropower is there. It's proven. It's at scale. It employs people. It can be done sustainably. It just needs the market and the policies to make it happen. I call on everybody to help in that journey to advance that sustainable hydropower to play its role. And I call on governments in particular to really put hydropower at the heart of their energy and development policies. Water, wind and sun gets the job done. I couldn't have said it better. I'd like to thank you, Eddie, for joining us and thank you to our listeners. It's been a pleasure. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.